taking a look inside the lives and minds of some of the world's most inspiring thought leaders. Everyone wants to think that their job and their sort of profession and their chosen thing is a special thing. And writers happen to be really good at communicating, especially through writing, and so they write about how special writing is. People living inspiring lives and motivating others. A kid forces you to either face who you are and change or double down on what you're ignoring. Brought to you by Athletic Greens. This is the Inspiring Lives Podcast with Gary Birtwistle. I'm Gary Burwistle and welcome to the Inspiring Lives podcast, the show that looks inside the minds of some of the world's foremost thought leaders to find out their recipe for success. We'll talk about how did they face up to their own personal disappointments. We'll check out their habits, their rituals, routines, and we'll also find out what's their advice for us to live our own inspiring life. We'll hear from people in health, nutrition, we'll speak to entrepreneurs, athletes, business leaders, the whole gamut. The Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by the most complete supplement for a better you, Athletic Greens. Today, we speak with best-selling author Tucker Max. He's the co-founder and chairman of Book in a Box, a company that takes your ideas and turns them into a book. He's written three New York Times bestsellers, including the number one hit, I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. His books have sold over 3 million copies and been translated into 30 languages. So Tucker, welcome to the Inspiring Lives podcast. Hey, how are you, man? When people walk up to you and say, hey, what do you do? How do you like to reply? (laughs) Uh, It kind of depends on the context, uh, you know, how I answer. Um, The general answer, the broadest answer I give is I either say I'm a writer or I'm a writer and entrepreneur, something like that. So being a writer, just... Without going back through the whole family history, have you always, even as a kid, did you always love books? Like, has, have, have books and writing always been a passion for you? You know what's funny? Books have, but writing has not. Um, I've always loved books. Um, I didn't really have great parents. So, like, uh, I mean, they weren't terrible or anything, but they weren't very good. And so a lot of what I learned as a kid, I learned on my own. I learned through books. And so books have always kind of had a special place in my heart. Um, but writing, I mean, I always liked writing. I was good at it, but I never thought I would be a writer growing up. Like being a writer is like, in my mind, that's like what, what, you know, uh, doofuses do, you know, like I thought I was going to do uh, like for real, like, it's funny <laughs> that I, I do that now. And, and like I growing up, I just thought it was like kind of lame, which is stupid because I read a bunch of books, but I, I, I don't know why I just didn't connect it to. I just, in my mind, I guess writers were always people who had to get their money from somebody else. They had to, they didn't really control their own destiny, you know, which used to be true, but it's obviously not. Do you know, it's funny when I hear you say that, it reminds me of uh, James Lipton from Inside the Actors Studio. And he said the, the, the biggest commonality with, with actors today, living actors, directors, producers, the biggest commonality is that they came from broken homes. And his theory is that because of coming from a broken home, these actors, directors, so on, had to spend a lot of time by themselves, so they had to live inside their imagination. Do you think there's a similar thing for you where because you felt as though your family wasn't a, a strong unit, you had to live in books and that's kind of where you escaped? Yeah, it, it wasn't escaping for me um, it, because, like, I didn't read a lot of fiction. Like there, I think your point is really good, and I think that's true for a lot of people, and I think that kind of explains why so much, um, you know, fantasy and that type of fiction is so popular. 
uh, it's a big part of it is escapism for people. Um, and I don't mean that judgmentally. It's just, it's the truth. It wasn't escapism for me. I've never really been a fiction person for me. It was about learning. Like, you know, my dad wasn't around at all. So like, I didn't have all the things that a good dad teaches a son. I didn't have anyone to teach me. So I kind of had to learn them on my own. And, and it was like one of those things where I realized, Oh, people have been writing down their knowledge for, you know, five, six, 7,000 years. Like I can, I like pretty much everything I'm going to encounter probably someone else has encountered and I can figure it out if I can just find the right book. Did you remember knowing that at the time, Tucker? Because I'm always fascinated when you speak with people that they recount their stories. And I wonder how much is recounting and then putting traction around what they think they thought back then or for you... Do you remember actually knowing that at a young age? Oh, yeah. No, I, I can very acutely remember. Um, I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I was some sophisticated thinker when I was <laughs> nine or something, because obviously I wasn't. But, um, I mean, I'm barely sophisticated now. And so, not, and, you know, 30 years ago, I was not. But um, I, I do definitely remember thinking you know what it was man i I remember feeling it was a feeling i remember Mm -hmm. feeling safe with books right like uh not like they could protect me but that like i just remember feeling like the knowledge i needed was there and i could get it and if i could just get the knowledge i would be safe like that was sort of the the loop in my head. Yeah, no, I, I remember that very clearly. You mentioned the word feeling then, and I heard you on a, another show and whoever was interviewing you could see you and apparently you have this pretty kick-ass library of books around you. Do you get the same feeling from a book as you do from a Kindle? So is it is the feeling coming from the pages, the book, the smell... Or can you get the same feeling from a Kindle? Um, okay, so I'll, my answer to that has evolved over the last few years. So um, it used to be – I used to be one of those people who only bought physical books. And I have like 3,000 books in my house. Like I have a massive library. And I was definitely one of those like book people. Like you know, the smell of the paper and all that nonsense, right? And then, believe it or not, it's kind of funny. It ties into the last question because um, my analyst, my you know, I was in therapy for uh, pretty serious therapy for about four or five years, and my psychoanalyst was like dove into this subject obviously a lot with me. And one of the things that she helped me realize is that part of the reason I was so like you know how we got to this realization is like too long to talk about, but the short sort of version is. Part of the reason I buy so many books and I have such a big library is because I associate books with safety, right? Like I kind of talked about before. And and when I realized that, I realized that was actually my argument for physical books. It was that they represented a feeling and an emotion to me. And once I realized that, I'm like, that's okay. It's not stupid. I get it. But then I looked at Kindle books and eBooks a totally different way. And I realized that Pretty much in every way, ebooks are better. Um, they are easier to read. They're more transportable. They're more portable. You can take notes in them easier. You can highlight in them easier. You could just everything about them. You can, it's the, everything about the way I read books, um, Kindle is better. And so if you actually look at my phone, 
like to, to me, I prioritize my apps by how close they are to my thumb, you know, because like the lower on the the lower to the right on the the screen they are, like the easier it is for my thumb to get there. And and so the kid, like if you actually look seriously, the low the 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 prime spot, the absolute lower right hand corner is the the Kindle app. And um, I probably read even I am a big reader, but when I was all physical. And even now, uh, I read, I think, maybe twice as much as I do with digital because Kindle's just better in every way. And I think every, I'm not going to say what everyone else's argument is because who knows? I can't speak for them. But I'll tell you that, like, when I used to make all these rational quote arguments about physical books being better, it was really an emotional argument that I was dressing up. As an author, and even at the start of this interview, you talked about the fact that you were loving books, but you never saw yourself as a writer. Why? Why does being an author or a writer carry so much stigma, Tucker? Like, why, why do so many people think, oh, I couldn't do that, it's for them, it's only for the select few? What, what, where's the stigma come from? So, I, you know, I, there's a lot of answers to that. I think, I honestly believe, my, again, this is one of those things where even a few years ago, I think my answer would have been different. But I think the, the answer now is, I think writers have created this illusion that writing is some magical mystical thing and it's only for the chosen few and that like you have to be quote special to be a writer and i think writers have done and i say this as a best-selling author like, i mean i'm like i've sold millions of books like i i very much used to be one of those fancy snobby elitist writers and um and i, I feel like they create that aura because they want to feel special you know, it's like everyone wants to think that their job and their sort of profession and their chosen thing is a special thing. And writers happen to be really good at communicating, especially through writing. And so they write about how special writing is. And so people who aren't writers listen to them, at least a lot of them, and they buy into it. And they're like, oh, yeah, I guess writing is special. I guess I can't do it. I guess it's only these anointed people over here. And the, the honest answer is that's both. I think absolutely Almost anyone can be a writer if you want. What it really takes, it really takes two things. It takes a willingness to put in the work uh, to, to learn how to be a writer, and it takes um, having something to say. And I think way more people have something to say than they realize. And I'm telling you this, like I own a company called Book in a Box, and that's what we do is we help people who, who, who can't, don't have the time or ability to write their own books but have something important to say. We help them finish their books. And, and, and we work with these people all the time, people who are serious experts in a field who've been doing something amazing for 10 or 20 or 30 years. And they come to us and even they are like, oh, well, I don't know if I have a book. And so, like, I'll ask them a few questions. Well, like, you know, uh, how do you make money? Like, oh, people pay me for, you know, to come tell them how to do something. And I'm like, well, <laughs> if you're getting paid, you know, 150 grand a year to teach something to someone, don't you think that could go in a book? And they're like, oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. I'm like, yeah. And so, um, like, I, it's just because those people buy into that idea that that writing that you have to be quote special to be a writer. Now, to be a professional writer. It's hard. Like to only make money from selling your words, that is hard. But that's a very different thing than authoring a book. You know, like we have a lot of people. We, we, we've done 600 books in three years. And, and our, our clients are all, they run the gamut from housewives to multinational CEOs and everything in between. And all of them we felt like had something to say. Uh, we couldn't have worked with them. 
and um, uh, like it, it, they they have books now, and even the ones that didn't learn how to write, like we have a lot of dyslexic people who are uh, who are authors, and and their stuff is really good, you know, like it's just that like they didn't learn how to create a book, right? So so that's kind of I guess my point is it is difficult to be a professional writer. It is possible for anyone to learn how to write, but it is also possible to author a book because having something important to say that the world wants to hear is totally distinct from knowing how to write a book. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I've heard you say that great writers worry about input and not so much about output. Can you elaborate on that and sort of define what you mean by the input? Yeah. So um, what I mean is, Input is what you have to say. So as a writer, as an author of anything, what you should be most worried about is what is the knowledge I am putting into my book? Because if that, and that really, and, and, and I mean, the only way you should be judging that knowledge is do other people find it valuable? Is this knowledge valuable to others? Because if it is, then that's like, that's input. That's the input, right? And when I say output, uh, I mean like the things that happen because you put, you know, you, you, you put something good into a book or something, you just write a book at all. Because a lot of people, when they start thinking about books, they think about bestseller lists or selling copies or being famous or whatever the hell that is. And, and I'm not saying like that stuff is bad. But what I'm saying is if you worry, it's sort of like if you worry about the trophy, then you're not going to hit the target. So you need to worry about the target first, hit the target, then you can go see what trophy you get. But if you just stare at the trophy, you're never going to hit the target. You won't get anything. Is it a case of where almost writing in the same way that we post, that we're trying to do it to get attention as opposed to finding something truly original to say, Tucker? Close. I've never been a fan of the framing of original because, um, first off, I can make the argument that almost nothing anyone is saying is truly original, right? But I don't think that invalidates something. You know, like, I I think what matters is does your – does what you have to say, does it resonate with other people? Because if, if it resonates with people, if it's valuable to them, if it helps them, who really cares if it's original or not, you know, like, or truly original. Um, now look, I, I love original thinkers. Like let's say someone like Nassim Taleb, I think is a truly original th- thinker. You know, he wrote the black swan and fool by randomness and, and, uh, anti-fragile and I, a brilliant genius, original thinker. Um, and extremely valuable. But there's a ton of people who've written books that I love that probably aren't truly original in the, in the broadest sense, but their book framed something in a way that I had never heard or seen, and it moved me, you know? And so that's really what I think most what most authors should, should think about and worry about is, is my book impactful? Like, does it actually help people or not? Not so much is it original. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. And there is, does that come with a risk to step away from the crowd and to produce something which is a different way of viewing something that has impact? Is there a risk in your mind that goes with that that we should embrace? Um, yeah, I mean, of course, dude. Any, anytime you do anything different than anyone else, you take any sort of um, – I mean, do anything at all almost, it, it, it's a risk. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I'm a big fan of risk, obviously. Like I'm a, a, a writer, an entrepreneur. I mean, there's, those are two very risky, you know, relatively risky positions, I guess. Um, I, I, I've never been a fan of, the, oh, yeah, hey, listen, everyone go take risks because some people just don't have a high risk tolerance, you know. And so there's way there's, – there's way but, – but, but at the same time, like just like there's ways to start a business without being too risky, there's ways to write without being risky. Now, you maybe – like, you know, you can start small. You have a blog. You write about sort of basic things and you kind of just – you go up incrementally from there. Um, it, it, I'll tell you the, the thing I will say, and I think this is fairly well known – is that um, the the big rewards tend to be on the other side of risk, you know? So you've generally got to take risks to get sort of big rewards, but I, I would never say you have to take a risk because what if I mean, some people just don't want to and okay, that's fine. I mean, some people like living a boring life. That's cool. As a as a best-selling author, you, you said that, you, you're very vulnerable in your writing, but then in your own life, you weren't. And you had to learn, and you'd already said during this interview, you, had to, you spent quite a bit of time with a, a therapist going through that. Have you learned to deal with that today, Tucker? Have you learned how to be more vulnerable in your own personal life as well as your writing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, by no means would I tell you I'm like some like paragon of vulnerability that everyone should look up to. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm much better than I used to be. So, you know, like I, like I, uh, I, I, you know, what's funny. Yeah, it's true. My writing was pretty vulnerable. If you actually read it and look at it for what it was, it was pretty vulnerable, which is, I think one of the reasons why it was popular. Um, but no, I was not good at doing that, um, in my life. And honestly, I think I'm still not, I think I am only better than I used to be. Uh, and, and it took, it took a lot of therapy and a lot of soul searching. And then I'm married now and I've got an amazing wife and I've got two kids and, um, kids, man, kids are like a mirror they, they will force you like a, a kid forces you to either face who you are and change or double down on what you're ignoring. Right. And I'm not good at that. Like if I have a, a strength, it is, I'm always willing to face the truth about myself. It may be hard, but I'm, I'm usually almost always willing to. And, um, man, my kids have really made me face some things like, oh yeah, like I think, oh no, I'm, I'm, I'm really calm. I don't ever yell at anybody or whatever. And then like, I'll catch myself snapping at my son and I, you can see it on his face. Like I know. And I'm like, man, like, like, and then like, you know, I'm like, oh, cause they, they just, they hold up a reality to you if you're willing to see it. Um, that is painful, but it's also good because it forces you to, it, it, you know, it's easy to lie to yourself, but you, I don't know. I mean, I guess some people can, I can't lie. Like if I snap at my kid and I see his little heartbroken face in front of me, I can't pretend that didn't happen. You know, it happened. It forces me to face hard truths about myself and then to fix them and change them. You know, you've had enormous success as an author. And you said that even having that success, you, you then had to go and then develop some true self-awareness. What did you go through to do that? Because I think people people look at guys like you, Tucker, and think you've got the world at your feet, New York Times bestselling author at numerous times. You're a guest on podcast with the best of the best. And people look at you and go, man, you've got it sorted. 
But when you say I had that success, then I had to go and find self-awareness. What did you go through or what questions did you have to really get down and get ugly with to find out who, who Tucker really is? Yeah, so the, well, it started for me with um, with my movie. Like I thought the movie would be a huge hit, and it it did pretty much bombed. It didn't do very well, and and so like I wish I could tell you that my journey to true or to self awareness started with a realization, but it didn't. It started with failure, which is usually how it happens for most people, unfortunately. And I was no different. I was no different, and um, uh, and so like. What happens? It's kind of like what I just talked about. Like you know, you, I snap at my son. That's not a huge failure, but it's a very, it's a very meaningful failure. You know, like it's a failure uh, as a parent. And like, um, yeah, what what failure does is it forces you to either see who you really are or see the truth, or it forces you to become delusional. You got to lie to yourself. One or the other, right? And so. Um, what the movie did was it really made me face some truths about myself. Now, like, like I couldn't, you know, I couldn't run from them anymore. And so, uh, the, the, the long, without telling the long, long story, the basic, it basically breaks down to, it was my problems, my emotional issues that in a lot of ways that ultimately caused that movie to fail. And, um, and so when it should have been a big success, it was my fault. And, um, Man, uh, what I did then, first off, it takes time. It takes a little bit of time to sit with your pain. Like, cause it, when, when you think you're something bigger than you are, and then you're faced with that reality, you then essentially have to, you die in a sense, not literally, of course, but li- metaphorically, figuratively you die. And so you've got to give yourself time to like weep for that and to be sad for that death. You know, so the misconception of who you are, that, that self, that sense of self that grandiosity is what dies. And so then in its pieces, you have to pick it up and you've got to try and rebuild who you are. And, um, and you've got to, but then like what I had to do at least, I mean, I can only tell you, this is all what I did, right? Um, I, I, that's when I really started therapy is I really kind of went and I got someone who I thought was really smart and who, who seemed to have her, her together and, and was able to call me in my bullshit. And, and I had her kind of help me help me guide me through me, you know, like, you know how easy it is to see your friend's problems that you can never see your own to me. Like that's, that's the whole point of therapy. Right. And so, um, I, um, it was just a matter of having her, like I would talk through what I was thinking and feeling. And then she kind of acted as a mirror and in a very sort of caring, but non and non judgmental way, just kind of held up, some of my ideas and thoughts and assumptions and, and, um, and thinking to me and let me look at them. And, and, um, and I realized kind of slowly that like a lot of what I thought was just wrong and I had to replace it with things that, that were more accurate and things that were more dialed in and things that were more emotionally connected and all those sorts of things, all those things I had wrong. Um, I had to replace the things that were right. Do you remember a question that this therapist asked you that, just time stood still, it sucked the oxygen out of the air and you went, man, that's that's really it. That has just broken through the ice. That's what I needed to hear that opened up everything and changed the trajectory of your thinking. You know, um, man. Okay, yeah, I'll give you one. 
Uh, th- like, so therapy is not like a movie where it's like there's like two or three things and, and everything else is B-roll, you know, I wish. But um, there, th- there is one – there's one very clear one I can remember. So maybe about my third year in therapy, I had gotten to the point where I really – like wanted to get serious about having a relationship. Like I, I was single at the time, but I wanted to find like a, a, a great woman to have a, a really good relationship with and maybe, you know, marry and have kids with. And, um, and I kept meeting girls, but they were just not what I was looking for. And so I remember I was kind of complaining about it to my therapist and this and that. And so she looked at me and she's like, well, Tucker, where are you meeting? How are you meeting women? And I kind of stopped. And I was like, well, they email me or they come to my book signings or they do this or that. And she's like, okay, well, when you were not serious about having a relationship, how are you meeting women? And I kind of stopped and I was like, oh, it was exactly the same way, right? And so she's like, okay, so when you were not serious, you developed a strategy that worked really well. And you're trying to use that strategy when you are trying to be serious. I was like, and like, it became so clear to me, like, I was, I, I, like my patterns were broken, you know? And, and so then, but then it was like, it was this whole thing. Like she had so many of these things. Here's a, another one. And that whole line of thinking where she really dropped a bomb on me was, um, like she kind of made me think up, okay, like create an avatar. What's the woman you want to end up with? What she like? And so I described kind of like, you know, this a pretty amazing woman I described and so she looked at me and she's like, is this a real person? Like, do you know any women like this? And I'm like, yeah, definitely. There's some amazing women out there. And I think, you know, I'm being pretty, pretty realistic. And, and I was a little unrealistic at first, but we eventually got it dialed in to where it was an awesome woman, no doubt, but it was realistic. And so she looked at me and she's like, okay, so tell me, Tucker, are you sure this woman's going to want to be with you? And I was like, you. <laughs> like, like at first I was like defensive. I was like, who the f- do you think you're talking to? Do you know who I am? And blah, blah, blah. And like, and, and whenever I'm defensive, it always means someone's had a nerve, right? And so, uh, like, after I was done ranting and raving, she was kind of just quiet and smiling at me. She's like, okay, well. And like, and it turns out, like, part of the reason I was probably pissed off is because I might have been unsure whether that woman was going to want me. And part of the reason I was sticking in my old habits was probably because I, it was safe. And because I knew the girls coming to my book signings were going to like me. Whereas if I had to go out and meet a baller woman that like I was opening myself up potentially for rejection. And of course, once I saw it all clear in front of me, then it was like, all right, fuck that. I'm going to go get dialed in. I'm going to make this happen. Like, you know, and, and I did eventually meet an amazing woman and married her and all that stuff. But it was like it was it was definitely one of those record scratch moments. Where, where does confidence come from for you? I mean, you 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 have been successful in your professional career in in lots of different ways, from being an author and now as an entrepreneur. You met the woman that you dreamt of having in your life, and you come across as a pretty. In fact, it, I'll set this up a different way. Where does confidence come from? Because I find it curious that you were a self-proclaimed asshole, and that's talked about a bit. My question is, do you still see yourself as that? Because I find it odd personally. But the second part is, does that relate back to your confidence or where does that confidence come from? It's funny. I just took a uh, like the a personality test uh, that kind of measured the big five personality traits 
And I got in the bottom 1% in politeness, like literally. And then, and then in the 99th percent in assertiveness. Right. And so like, um, so yeah, I think there are definitely times where I am, I, I, let me say I behave in a way where people are very justifiably seeing me as an asshole. Right. And like, I don't really go out anymore and like try to be an asshole or like troll people or anything like that. Cause like, I'm like, yeah, I'm past, I'm bored with that. That's annoying, but I'm, I'm just very direct and I'm very, I can be very abrasive and uncouth a lot of times. And, um, that is something that I'd like to improve, but it's sort of like, eh, like I'm not working the hardest at it. Probably not as hard as I should, but, um, uh, confidence to me. My confidence, I feel like, comes the same really from where everyone's confidence comes from. It comes from demonstrated performance. You know, like I'm confident in a conversation like this because I've talked about these things before. I feel pretty secure with a lot of the work I've done on myself. Um, I, like, I'm, you know, I can tell funny stories about embarrassing shit I've done because I, like, you know, I've, I've been through it, right? And um, so I, I've, I've proven to myself that I can um, do things that are necessary, right? And I can do things that I want to do. Not everything, of course, but um, that's, that's not almost everyone. That's where confidence comes from. And so, um, but it's, it kind of ties back into to why people, some people still perceive me as an asshole is because a lot of my confidence too comes from the fact that I, I just don't, I see things, I, one, part of my strengths is I see things as they are. I'm willing to say out loud the things no one else is, uh, will say. And that's a benefit a lot of times. Sometimes I, I could do it in a better way. You know, I'm just not as polite or tactful as I could be. And uh, this, one day I'll get those things balanced up really well. Um, but I'm still kind of working on that, so to speak. With with the work you've done on yourself, with help and I suspect with your success, and with the movie and stuff, you've had to dig, dig, dig down, look inside yourself. How do you, how does Tucker handle the in- internal critic? I mean, we all have it. And I heard a quote this morning saying that it's it's not, it's not the it's not the sunny days, but it's the dark, gloomy, dark, rainy days that defines our success. How do you, how do you handle your own internal critic? You know what's funny about that is I feel like I don't have an internal critic, which is like I think this is actually one of the things that I need to work on the most. Because if I feel like that, it probably means I have one. It's just very – in fact, it definitely means I have one, but it's just deeply buried, and so, which probably makes it more dangerous. You know, um, I, I guess w- one of the ways that I deal with it is um, – one of the best ways, I think, to deal with it, period, is, is to make yourself accountable to other people you care about for the work you're doing. And then it's easy to get it out. You know, so like I, I have a company um, that I founded and we have 30 people um, full time that work here and like 150 freelancers and 600 authors we're working with. And so like, like if I don't do something, then people that matter to me suffer. So um, that's a really easy way to get past my sort of internal critic is, is I don't make it about me. I make my work about others. And then it's like the hell with that, that critic, you know. Um, or, or you make it about your children or your family or whatever. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know, man, like when it's just me, how do I deal with my internal critic? I don't know. I'm not effective at dealing with it, to be honest. I'm not sure. 
It's interesting in in the music industry, Tucker, it's not the first album that goes to number one. It's always the second album. And that puts puts pressure on the band or the artists. Can you do it again? So you've done it a number of times for the New York Times bestseller list. You have been super successful with that book in a box, not only with the number of books you've done, but also the quality. I mean, you're, you're at the top end, the epic authors of the world you're working with. How do you, how do you draw peak performance out of yourself? So if we take away, strip away everything that had, strip away the resume and go down to today with you drawing peak performance out of yourself, do you have a a process, a system? Do you have a go-to you use to hold yourself to that standard? Um, man, like almost all that stuff, I think I would have to, um, like we do, if we do a good job at this company, we actually do do a good job at this company. I think honestly, the main reason it starts with our CEO, uh, JC McCormick is a dude that I hired to replace me as CEO and he's fantastic. Like he really does set an incredible, um, he sets the bar. And then he really does train and he really does mentor and he really does hold people accountable. And he just, he pays attention to details. And that guy is just a baller. He is a baller CEO. And, um, and then after him, man, he's hired an amazing team here. Like we, we, this, this tribe of people is, are, are some really hardworking, really caring people who really do their job. And, um, to the extent that we do a good job here, man, it's mainly due to, to him and his leadership of those people. Like, I, like, I mean, I'm, I'm, I helped, I started this Zach and I started it and, and, and we have a lot of smart ideas, but we're kind of the visionaries and, and the marketers, not so much the doers and the attention to detail people. I heard a quote recently and somebody said, don't ask me for a new idea when you haven't made use of your last one. And I'm just, I'm actually curious about this, Tucker, with all the books you read, the information you take in, how do you record or keep a hold of ideas? So you're going through books, whether it be paperback or Kindle, you're being interviewed by people, you are hearing interviews, you're hanging out with some super smart people. How do you keep a hold of ideas, thoughts, things that come from your learnings? Are you a journaler? Do you... A doodler? Do you draw it? Like, how do you keep a hold of this stuff? Yeah, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of disorganized. Maybe I'm not. I like the main thing I use is Simple Note, which is like a uh, just like a very simple note taking <laughs> called Simple Note, right? It's a very simple note taking app. It's I've got it on my desktop and on my iOS on my uh, my phone my iPhone, um, and so I've got like files in there. It's sort of like Evernote, except you can't clip things. It's just for ideas. And then for um, re- like clipping things I read or other things, I use um, uh, Instapaper. I used to use Evernote, but it got kind of unwieldy. And so now I, I just use Instapaper and SimpleNote. Um, and so all my ideas go into SimpleNote. All the things I read that I want to keep a hold of go into Instapaper. And that's, that's pretty much – and then as – so the, the way I, I, I try not to just like learn things randomly, I try to try to keep – what I call a like as needed memory. So like if I really need to learn about, I don't know, like email copy or something, right. I probably have a bunch of stuff in, in my Instapaper. And so I'll, I'll go like, like look at, you know, I'll go search email copy 
And then I've got maybe 20 things and then I'll read all those and I'll take a bunch of notes and I'll write down everything I learned and then that will become a file in my simple note um, and then I'll use that knowledge for whatever it is I need to do and then if I ever need it again, I just come back to it and refresh. That's kind of how I, how I do it. Um, it works well enough for me. There's a young guy or girl listening to this, world of possibilities in front of them, listening to you, look at your back, your back catalogue of success. What do you say to them, mate? What's your advice? What could you drop on them to say, dude, if you take this piece of advice, this, from all I've learned, here's the one piece of advice that I would take on. What would it be? Uh, man, the one piece. Um, all right, so honestly, I'm not even sure I can beat what Socrates wrote in the Apology. Um, I would basically tell them that if they really, really want to do well in life and really um, whatever they want to succeed or they want to be happy or whatever, that it all starts with humility, um, which is a really hard lesson for me to learn. But it's, it starts with knowing that you don't know anything, but, but doing the best with what you know, which is – it's a weird paradox. And Socrates explains it better than I do in the Apology, which is why he's Socrates and I'm not. But um, uh, the, the, the basic idea is he's the wisest man in Athens because he doesn't know anything. He doesn't say he knows anything, right? He knows that he doesn't know anything, whereas everyone else thinks they know something and they don't. And so, like, they're vulnerable to problems that he's not because he doesn't assume he knows. And, like, if you start with that mental framework, then, man, you are just so far ahead. of You're ahead of me. You're ahead of most other people. Well, I reckon it's a great place to stop, mate, because I don't think uh... – I don't think we can really go anywhere after Socrates. So, um, Tucker, thank you for your time, mate. It's been a real privilege being able to spend some time, chat, throw some questions around and hear your answers. Um, We really appreciate your time. Thank you, mate. Cool, man. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So that's today's show. There are loads more incredible guests in the weeks to come on the Inspiring Lives podcast. Check out all the show notes at athleticgreens.com. Next time on the show, a great thought leader. His name is Rob Wolf, a former research biochemist, a two times New York Times bestselling author of two books, The Paleo Solution and Wired to Eat. Rob has transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world with his work. He's a former state powerlifting champion. He coaches athletes at the highest level of competition and does seminars in nutrition and strength conditioning at NASA and the U.S. Marine Corps. That's coming up on the Inspiring Lives podcast. The Inspiring Lives podcast brought to you by Athletic Greens. New episodes out every other Monday morning. Tune in and subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or your favorite podcast platform.